All right, so um, welcome. Uh, last week, we started our meetings where we're going to be going through the London Baptist Confession of Faith 1689. But uh, Luke actually did an introduction into the proper use and the history of creeds and confessions. And this week, we're going to start going through the London Baptist Confession of Faith 1689, Chapter 1. And uh, just as a brief breakdown, there are 32 chapters in this confession. And each confession has a set amount of paragraphs. So when we talk and, and reference the confession, we'll make reference and say things like chapter 1, paragraph 1, or chapter 10, paragraph 3. So just so that you can be familiar with the lingo. And our intention here is to do a very brief overview of each chapter um, over the span of the next uh, several weeks. And we're looking to get this done before we officially constitute as a church and launch as a church. Um, and uh, once we do that, our hope and desire is to slowly go through the confession. Um, you'll, you'll see then how there are just words that have a lot of meaning. A lot of the words are, are old theological words that you might think you know what it means um, in modern language, but it's going to mean something a little bit different or vastly different. So um, just for these next few, or just for these lessons, we're going to do a brief overview. So I'm going to be as brief as possible. We're going to read each paragraph, but then I'm going to just give a brief summary of each paragraph. So we're going to start with chapter one, paragraph one, and chapter one of the confession is of the Holy Scriptures. And paragraph one reads this way. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. That's the first sentence. Next sentence, therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manner to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now completed. If after reading that first paragraph, you notice, if you have a, a good confession, it'll have uh, little numbers that are going to be to footnotes referencing, referencing scripture. And it's important that we point that out because um, as we go through this confession, what we're doing is confessing what we believe the Bible teaches. And so, um, because of this overview, I'm not going to um, read all of the verses that are cited here for any of these paragraphs, but it's good to know that um, in a study of what the confession is teaching, you need to be aware and be familiar with the verses that it's using to make it or to prove its point. So, and then another thing you may notice is just how long some of these sentences may be. Um, that's where it can get a little heady. Um, and uh, it could be hard to even 
understand the concepts of what it's saying because we don't all speak this way. But um, I thought it would be helpful to sort of summarize uh, each of these paragraphs by pulling some of the words out to make shorter thoughts and so that we can communicate what each paragraph is trying to uh, say. And this first paragraph really is talking about the necessity of Scripture. And so if I were to pull out some of the words, I could read it as this. The Holy Scripture is the only rule of all saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. That word rule, um, we also use a, a, word called, uh, a word called canon, which is the same thing. And a rule or a canon is a standard of discrimination or, or estimation. Or you could say it's a criterion or a test. Essentially what we're saying is that the Holy Scripture is the only rule, it's the only standard of discrimination or estimation when we're talking about all things regarding saving faith, saving knowledge, and saving obedience. That paragraph goes on to say, to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. So when we're talking about uh, when we're considering the necessity of Scripture, what we're saying here, what the Confession is saying here, is that the Scriptures are necessary for us to understand what, it, what, what is necessary for saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. It goes on to say, Therefore the Lord revealed Himself and declared His will, and afterward to commit the, holy, or the same holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be necessary. So if we're talking about the necessity of Scriptures being that which we need to know for saving faith, saving knowledge, saving obedience, this first paragraph is stating that this knowledge uh, and uh, this, the information that we needed to get these things comes from God, from God alone, and that God made this known by revealing himself and declaring his will. And that these things afterward were committed wholly unto writing. And that these writings make up the Holy Scriptures and by necessity make them necessary for us to have. Going to paragraph number two, we could title this paragraph the definition of Scripture. And we could say that uh, the way that it does that is by naming the 66 books of the Bible which it does, reading the first paragraph, it says, Under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. And it goes on to name the 66 books of the Bible. There are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And the last sentence in paragraph 2 says, All of which are given by the inspiration of God, to be the rule of faith and life. That word inspiration is a critical word that we will definitely dive in further. And you might already be familiar with it now, but essentially inspiration is the word that we use to how God communicated his word through the Holy Spirit unto men in order for them to prophesy and put these right, uh, the, uh, the knowledge that God wanted to communicate to writing. Paragraph three. We could give the title to paragraph three, the definition of Scripture, exclusively. So what is, what is Scripture not? We know what it is in paragraph two. What is it not? It says in paragraph three, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, 
are no part of the canon or rule of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. And so what's interesting about this par this paragraph is that it sets apart the Apocrypha as not being divine scripture. It's not inspired by God, therefore it should not be considered a rule of scripture. But it has its use for in at the end of the sentence it says that uh, its use is good for human for human writing. It should be looked at as human writings. And if you don't know what the Apocrypha was, there's Apocrypha that's associated in the Old Testament times, and there's New Testament Apocrypha. And the Catholic Church actually has the Old Testament Apocrypha in its canon. It has the Old Testament, the New Testament, but with it, it has the Old Testament Apocryphal books. And some of them are historical. Some are probably heretical, for sure. Um, some are contra contrary to what the Scriptures teach. Others really are not... Contrary, they're neither contrary or pro because they're more historical. And so some of them have their use, others do not. And the, uh, the authors of the, of the confession made it a point to put it in there that the Apocrypha is not to be considered part of Scripture. And so we see what is Scripture in paragraph 2 and what Scripture is not in paragraph 3. Moving forward we start to see what are the properties concerning Scripture. And there are three properties that the Confession now begins to present before us. It's going to present the authority of Scripture. It's going to present the perfection of Scripture. And it's going to pre present the perspicuity of Scripture. That's a hard word to say, and we'll do, I'll give you a definition of what that means. But its authority is going to be seen in paragraph 4 and paragraph 5. And in paragraph 4, what we see regarding its authority is the source of its authority. The source of the authority of Scripture. And paragraph 4 reads this way. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. I think this, is, this paragraph is quite easy to understand, but if I wanted to summarize it for uh, better, easier understanding, it could read, the authority of the Holy Scripture depends wholly upon God, the author. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. And so we see that the Scriptures have authority because of its author, who is God himself. Paragraph 5 when we're considering the authority of Scripture, is the proof of its authority. The proof of its authority. This is a long paragraph. We'll read the whole paragraph, and then I'll summarize it um, for this overview. Paragraph 5 reads this way. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, and the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery of it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof 
are arguments whereby it does abundantly it does abundantly these being evidences itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority therefore is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So let me summarize it in this way. We may be moved and induced by the Holy Scriptures. The paragraph goes on to give many reasons or many ways in which we may be moved and induced. We may be induced by the heavenliness of the matters in Scripture. We may be induced by the how efficiently worded and structured the doctrines may come from Scripture or the majesty of the style when we consider the Psalms or we consider uh, Revelation and where we consider uh, the creation account. The majesty of the style. There, there are many different authors used many different styles of writing. And the consent of all the parts, meaning we find consistent uh, conclusions throughout Scripture. We start recognizing, you know, hey, this, this said this in one spot of Scripture, and it's reaffirmed in another spot of Scripture. There's, there's a whole host of reasons why. And it goes on to say, or by its incomparable excellencies and, and entire perfections. All these might be reasons why, or might be proofs as to the authority of Scripture. And rightly so. One can recognize and read, read the Bible and start recognizing all these things and start seeing divine authority in Scriptures. But what's unique about this paragraph, it ends with this statement. Yet our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority rest on this, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. What we'll see in paragraph 6 is that really one can recognize and even see innate divine authority within the Scriptures and appreciate it for what it is, but it takes the work of the Holy Spirit along with the Scriptures to do the work in someone's heart to, to recognize and have to be persuaded and find full assurance of salvation with regards to the truth and the authority that is that is the Holy Scriptures. Paragraph 6 goes on to talk about its second perfection, or the, its second property, that is, the perfection of Scripture. Paragraph 6 is long again, and we'll read the whole thing, and then we'll break it down. Paragraph 6 reads this way, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which... Nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions in societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Here we're going to be presented with the perfection of Scripture. 
Let me summarize this chapter like this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for, for what? For his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life is in the Holy Scripture. Is in the Holy Scripture. If you wanted to, it, and so in that way it is perfect because it's all things that are necessary. All things necessary. Then it goes on to say, it's so perfect that it goes on to say, unto which nothing at any time is to be added. And it breaks down what, what it's talking about there. It says, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or of traditions of men. It's so perfect that nothing should be added to it. Nevertheless, regardless of how perfect Scripture is, man is still fallen, and so man needs the work of the Spirit to truly and savingly know and trust the Scripture. So it says, Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So the Scriptures are so perfect that we can know and understand the things concerning glory, salvation, faith, and life. But it requires the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts, revealing the Word, changing our hearts, revealing the Word, for us to come to saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. This next section there goes on to say, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And let me just grab one phrase out of here and just give, give a brief uh, uh, statement of what it's saying. And just know that in, in due time we'll go over this more. But that phrase where it says, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church. This book here is a good commentary on the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And uh, James Renahan in there says this concerning that statement. These are things that are that um, when the church is trying to consider when, what time of the day they're going to meet or how long the service is going to be or a place of meeting for worship on the Lord's Day or the exact form that preaching is going to take, or the specific functions and duties of individual officers in each congregation. What it's saying there is that the Scriptures are good for, for necessary things, but there are these secondary things that the Scriptures will speak into it in some degree, but we're supposed to use our consciences, um, the law written on our hearts, um, the light of nature, meaning like, hey, if we don't have... If we don't have a big building to meet in and we have a small space, we shouldn't feel pressed to, to, to meet in a bigger building by any, anything in Scripture. Um, if we have someone that's not good at, um, let's just say, if, yeah, if we have an elder that's not good at singing, we shouldn't force the elder to lead the congregation in singing because there's nothing in Scripture that says he needs to lead them in singing. And so there, there are just different things I had here. Should we use pews or should we use chairs? Should we use this hymnal or should we use this hymnal? Should you use the ESV or the NESV? We could probably make good arguments, but we can't really point to the scriptures as being 
that uh, as being the deal breaker. Because the scriptures, the things that the scriptures are concerned with in that chat, in that first paragraph, uh, paragraph six started with, it says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life are in the Holy Scriptures. Um, there is a verse here that I wanted to read. Um, it's 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is one of the verses that it uses to make this point. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I can say with confidence that trying to decide between pews and chairs is not what the Scripture is concerned with. Paragraph 7, the third property of, script, of Scripture is its perspicuity. Perspicuity. And I'm going to define that for you right now. Perspicuity is the ability of all people to read, to understand, to, to read, to know, and to understand the gospel. And so paragraph seven reads this way. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, not alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known to be believed and to be observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Let me summarize this paragraph in this way. All, the, all those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are clear in Scripture, so that all may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So the Scriptures are clear enough regarding the Gospel, that when we want to know what is the Gospel, we should be able to go to the Scriptures to verify, to know what the, what the Gospel is. Psalm 19.7 which is one of the proof texts for this paragraph, reads in this way, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so, after considering that the scriptures are divine, what the scriptures are, that they're the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, that they're not the Apocrypha, when we consider that the scriptures have authority, that they are perfect, and that they are clear, we can come to this conclusion that for anyone to understand the gospel message, the scriptures must be first from the, must be understood from the original text and languages, translated faithfully into common languages to be read and understood by common people. We'll see this in paragraph 8. And in paragraph 9, we'll see that the scriptures must be interpreted correctly. And in the last paragraph, paragraph 10, we'll read that the scriptures must be used to settle all biblical conclusions and controversies. And so looking at paragraph 8, if the scriptures have authority and are perfect and clear, we can read these two sentences like this. We can look at the form of the scriptures. The scripture, or the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, 
which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. So it's in, in its original form, the Old Testament was in Hebrew, and the New Testament is in Greek. And this paragraph says, By God's singular care and by his providence, he has, he has kept them pure in all ages. And so they are authentic. But, they, and because of that, they must be used to settle all controversies of religion. The church is finally to appeal to them. The next sentence goes on to read, But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, we have a right unto an interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar or the common language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of those scriptures may have hope. And so because of the form, the form being that the scriptures were originally written in Hebrew, and in Greek, and they have been kept by the providence of God, and that they're intended to be used to settle all controversies of religion so that the church can finally appeal to them. This paragraph goes on to say that because of the original languages, they're not known to the people of God. That is, not everybody knows Hebrew and Greek. They ought, they ought to be translated into the common language of every nation. And this indeed is the mission of the of the Christian church to go and to disciple the nations, they must translate the word faithfully into common languages so that the people of God can have the word, read the word, understand the word, be illuminated by the Holy Spirit, come to saving faith in Christ, and use the scriptures to settle all controversies of religion. But it also says that the reason for this also is that they may worship God in an acceptable manner. And through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. And if you know and are familiar with missionary stories, indeed the word brings comfort and hope to people who don't have the scriptures. We're very spoiled nowadays with uh, the scriptures in our common language, and yet there are still a people of, a, of, a, of their own common language that still have yet to have the scriptures translated in their common language. And so the duty of the church is to do the work of translating the scriptures from the original Hebrew and Greek into the common language. Paragraph 9. So if the scriptures have authority and are perfect and clear, paragraph 9 says that it must be interpreted rightly. So paragraph 9 reads this way, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Uh, I wasn't sure if I needed to summarize this other than just saying that what this is trying to communicate to us is that there are some clear things in scripture, like the gospel, which we read in one of the previous passages or paragraphs, but there are also some things that might not be so clear. And so what we must do 
in interpreting Scripture is to interpret Scripture with Scripture so that the less clear can become more clear by the more clear passages. I hope, I hope you followed that along. So Scripture is, is so perfect and so clear that we must use it for the not-so-clear passages in Scripture. And lastly, this last paragraph, paragraph 10, if the uh, Scriptures have authority, if they are perfect, and if they are clear, we must use them to settle all controversies. And so paragraph 10, one sentence reads this way. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined. And in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. Let me summarize it this way. The supreme judge can be no other but the Holy Scripture. And it, it, it names some things here, councils, creeds, ancient writers, people that are making doctrinal statements and conclusions. This confession itself must be examined and, and determined to be accurate only through the lens of the Scriptures. The Supreme Judge can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. We are taking time to do a brief overview of this confession, and it's important to note that this confession in chapter 1 begins with stating the, the divine um, origins of the Scripture, and it ends with appealing to the Scriptures yet again. And so even though we desire to be a confessional church, and we are going to use this confession as this, our confession for this church. It's important to note that we do this in light of the fact that we believe that this is the most accurate representation of what the scriptures teach. And so when we study this confession and we appeal to this confession, if we do it faithfully and we do it correctly, we're actually appealing to the scriptures themselves. And so this is a helpful tool and a good reminder that um, the scriptures must be known and we must uh, use them properly. Um, one of the proof texts for that last paragraph is Acts 28, 17 through 24. And we'll end with this uh, passage. This is Paul in Rome, and it reads like this. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he, that is Paul, said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of your fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, it was compelled. I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I, I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everyone 
or everywhere it is spoken against. So when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved.